The following lecture was delivered at the 16th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Miami, Florida, a project of the Rohr Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy it. We encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Rabbi Simon Jacobson presents his lecture, The Jewish Response to Racism. Were you ever, any of you were ever called a racist? Anybody? <laughs> well, I was called a racist a number of times. And I'll share one that actually happened here in Florida. Let's see, uh, in 1995 it was. So we're talking about uh, 29 years ago. Um, no, more than that, 27 years ago, right? So my book, Toward a Meaningful Life, was just published then. And the publisher, William Morrow, when there's a new author, they invest in you. There was a thing called, I don't know about these days, but it was a book tour. They send an author on a book tour. And I was sent on a book tour across the United States where you get uh, the royal treatment, the red carpet, and the interviews, print, Internet was just beginning to emerge then, so there really wasn't a web presence. So print, uh, radio, and television interviews. And then in the evening, you speak at a bookstore, a Barnes & Noble. There was Borders then at the time as well. But in November, there's an international Miami book fair held in downtown Miami, in, in uh, South Beach, where people from all walks of life and authors from all over the world and publishers and agents, everybody gathers together. And they feature a few authors. I was one of the featured authors. And when there's a particular larger audience, it was, in the, it was in Colony Theater on Lincoln Road in South Beach. And I remember it like today, a beautiful auditorium, literally like a, uh, a uh, they do performances there. So the acoustics are perfect. After my talk, they opened up for questions. And I remember a woman gets up in the left back of the balcony. And this was her question. She said, I read your book, part of it, but I'm skeptical. And I want to ask you this. I hear that uh, people like you, those were her words, um, don't recognize conservative Judaism. And I want to know if it's true, because if it is, I don't want to buy the book of a racist. That was the word she used. Now, conservative here, meaning the denomination, not conservative in contrast to liberal, but conservative as in reform, conservative, reconstructionist, orthodox. And I saw from the silence of the audience that many people had this question in their minds. But she had the chutzpah, the nerve to ask it. And everybody was like deathly silent, even more silent. You could hear a pin drop. I wanted to see what I'm going to say. So I decided to take advantage of the dramatic moment. And I said, yes, indeed. Um, I don't recognize conservative Judaism. And I felt silent, which took effort. And everybody started buzzing and hemming and hoing. It wasn't very comfortable. 
because people were really like upset at what I just said, and I didn't even explain it. I just said it right outright. Basically, I was a racist, I would say. So I waited until the plays got really, you know, but right before they were about to stone me and get violent, I said, but I want to add something. I also don't recognize uh, Orthodox Judaism or Reform or Reconstructionist or, orth or Conservadox or Reformadox or all the other doxes that were and will be created probably over time. You see, because in the Constitution of Judaism, which is called the Torah, there's no reference made to any of these names and these labels and these denominations. So who created them? From my point of view, they're just bureaucracies. I did say, like McDonald's, Burger King, and Wendy's, the kosher version. Or, I don't and I want to reverse the question to you and to everyone here. Was Moses, the great Moses, was he orthodox, conservative, or reform? And what about God? Is God conservative, orthodox, or reform? Is God even Jewish? We know he wasn't circumcised. Was he male or female? So, even if you don't have any sophisticated understanding of a soul, we know that souls are not defined by human terms and labels. Labels are for clothing, they say, not for souls. A soul, the Torah defines as a divine image. There's no such thing as a square, rectangle, or triangular soul. There's no black or white soul or yellow or, or uh, of color or no color. So I said, what we'd like to do is come back to the way Moses was. Anyway, just to tell you the end of the story here, so the woman didn't let go. After I finished my response, she said to me, well, that's a very cute answer, but how do I know that's true? So at this point, I, ready, I had to feign indignation. And I said, listen, lady, life is filled with risks. You're going to have to get my book and read it and see for yourself. Even though she had read it, I'm not sure what she read, but she didn't read. The point is that it's a story that happened almost 30 years ago, and I've repeated it many times, and I have to thank her because I would never have had the story if this didn't happen. So in case you ever do any public speaking, remember, hecklers play an important role. And you can actually learn from them and feed off of it, and it sometimes reveals deeper dimensions of ideas. So that was one of my stories of being called a racist and how I dealt with it. So taking that as a short intro, I thought of doing something a little different than I usually do. Instead of just giving a talk on racism, and uh, which is taken from the wisdom of the ages, of the sages and of the ages, I thought that um, let us together perhaps follow a text, a short text from the Talmud. So if you look at, your, at the table, they should have been handed out, one page. If it's not, it's on the corner of each table. And you can follow as much as you want to follow. You don't have to follow it. I'm going to explain it. I just thought, going back to our Talmudic text, which is close to 2,000 years old, can give us tremendous insight into this topic called racism. But more importantly, not just to deal with the symptoms 
which we see many, especially today, in our polarized society. I don't need to elaborate, especially in the last few years. And on both sides of the aisle, some, call, some who see racism everywhere, some who recognize it has to be somewhat balanced, some don't see racism anywhere. And when you're dealing with symptoms, and especially, as I said, polarized politics, where you just say one word, one name, and it could be a lightning rod and people don't even want to listen to you, they right away dismiss you as a racist, I think it's healthy for intelligent people to go back to the roots, the roots of it all. And maybe in a, in a provocative way we can say this, is there such a thing as a born racist? And even your wife, I'm sure, Abshaya, said, probably will not say you were born that way. Maybe yet, there's a gebodene or a gebodene. There's born, inherent, and then there you assume or you um, acquire certain prejudices and biases. So when you get to the root, besides understanding really the root issues, you also can get to solving the problem. Just as is a medicine, when you heal symptoms, there can be band-aids, painkillers, but it's usually temporary. You want to really heal something, you have to get to the root of it. I thought this fascinating Talmud, which is in the tractate called Tainus, which actually is related to these days of the year, because we're now, tonight, tomorrow is the 15th of Av, which comes, follows the saddest day in the Jewish calendar, the day when we commemorate and remember the destruction of the temple, which as we shall talk about, actually was a result of racism, of a certain sort. Baseless hatred, sinas chinam, where people, divisiveness. So now, when we come to the full moon of this month, it's like a tikkun, a repair. And that's why this day is considered a day, a romantic day. A day of marriage, a day of shaduchim. And it, called, it is called, actually, by the Talmud, in the end of this tractate that we're going to look at, that there were no holidays in Israel like the day of the 15th of Av and Yom Kippur. So it's a particular fitting. So if you'll see the page, it's from the Talmud and Tainus, as I said, 20A and B, it should actually say. 20AB. You have the Hebrew or the Aramaic and the English translation. And it is so um, prescient that when you read this, it literally can be a commentary for today in the year 2022. So let's read it together, and I will analyze it and explain it. A lot of it is self-understood, to be honest, but we'll find insights into the root, not just of racism in the narrow sense of the word, but any form of judgmentalism, condescension, prejudice, biases, and we all have them, for the record. Sometimes they, be, can, they can be innocuous, but sometimes they can be destructive. And we, we're witnesses, especially as Jews. We've been the victims of racism, of discrimination, and not just conceptually. We've suffered greatly at the hands of nations. So this really gives us a broad perspective of how we look at each other. And the Talmud, in its uh, merciless fashion, doesn't mince words. It will talk very openly, which itself is quite a study. You know, usually, if you get a document from someone written by your own people, 
you'd think they'd put everything in beautiful light and they would uh, couch things. But you'll find in, both in the Torah itself, in the written Torah and in the Talmud, critique even of the greatest sages is stated very openly to teach us many lessons. So this particular episode is actually with one of the great giants, Rabbi Lazar, the son of Rabbi Shimon. Rabbi Shimon was Rabbi Shimon by Yechai. Yes, the great Rabbi Shimon by Yechai. The story is with his son. But before the story begins, the Talmud is talking about this. The sages taught. I'm going to read just the English. I won't read the Hebrew so we can uh, preserve time here. The sages taught, Tanur I know I just said I'm not going to read the Hebrew, but that's a powerful statement, so I think it's good to say it. A person should always be soft like a reed, and he should not be stiff like a cedar. You know, a reed is very flexible, and it blows in the wind, and it's yielding, whereas a cedar can be very powerful, but it's unyielding. And to demonstrate this, the Talmud tells us of an incident, a story. An incident occurred in which Rabbi Loza, son of Rabbi Shimon, came from Migdal Gedar. That was a city. From his rabbi's house. So he was a great sage. So he came from his rabbi. We're not told who the rabbi is, but must have been a, a giant. And he was studying with him. So he's returning from there. And he was riding on a donkey and strolling on the bank of the river. This is Rabbi Loza. And he was very happy. The truth is the word actually, I would translate it differently, says, I think you could also translate, not just that he was happy, he was very proud because of his studies. So he was in that type of mode, very uplifting and very proud mode. And his head was, oh, it does say that, I'm sorry. My mistake. Right. He was very happy and his head was swollen with pride because he had studied much Torah. Okay, beautiful. It's a good thing to be proud of. But here you start seeing an unbelievable psychological analysis of what happens when a person is proud. Even proud about something that is holy. We're not talking about proud he made a lot of money or he indulged in a, a delicious meal or something materialistic. He's proud about learning Torah. What happens next? The Talmud continues. He happened upon an exceedingly ugly person. That's the literal translation, an exceedingly ugly person. And that person greeted Rabbi Lazar and he said to him, greetings to you, my rabbi. But Rabbi Lazar did not return his greeting, which itself was already something. Instead, much worse, he said to him, worthless one, how ugly is that man? He commented on his unbecomingness. And we'll soon talk about what this ugliness was. But that's what he says. And he continues, Rabbi Loza, and says, Are all the people of your city as ugly as you? The man responded, said to him, I do not know. But you, you, Rabbi Loza, should go and say to the craftsman who made me, How ugly is the vessel you made? Go to the one that shaped me. I didn't create myself. My look that you're commenting on, that you're so, you're so repulsed by. 
go to the craftsman that shaped me and say, look how ugly is the vessel that you created, this human being. When Rabbi Loza realized what he had said and that he had sinned and insulted this man, simply merely at the count of his appearance, he descended from his donkey and prostrated himself before him. And he said to the man, I have sinned against you, forgive me. And the man said to him, I will not forgive you until you go to the craftsman, which of course is God, who made me and say, how ugly is the vessel you made? Essentially, you insulted God. So you go to the God, go to the craftsman. He's the one that created me. The, the Talmud continues. Rabbi Lazar did not give up. He realized what he had done. So he followed him. He walked behind the man, trying to appease him until they reached Rabbi Lazar's city. The people of his city came out to greet him because Rabbi Lazar was a leader in that town. They said to him, greetings to you, my rabbi, my rabbi, my master, my master. Meaning all the people in the towns, people greeted him. This man, who was so humiliated and insulted by Rabbi Lozer, says to the people of that town, of who they considered him to be their great rabbi, who are you calling my rabbi, my rabbi? They said to him, the man, to this man, Rabbi Lozer, who's walking behind you. He said to them, if this man is a rabbi, may there not be many like him among the Jewish people. So they asked him why. For what reason would you say such a thing? Now, their impression of Rabbi Lozer was that he was a great, the great of the great. He said to them, he did such and such to me. The Talmud doesn't even say, he didn't even repeat. But he clearly told them what happened. They said to him, even so, forgive him, as he is a great Torah scholar. So the man now responded. He said to them, for your sake, because you requested, I will forgive him provided that he accepts upon himself not to become accustomed to behave like, to behave like this. Immediately, Rabbi Loza, son of Rabbi Shimon, entered the study hall and taught, a person should always be soft like a reed and he should not be stiff, stiff like a cedar. And the explanation, as the commentaries explain, because for someone who is proud like a cedar, he is likely to sin. His uh, pride, even his arrogance, can easily allow him to sin. And therefore, due to gentle qualities, the reed merited that out of the reed we make a quill which, from which it's taken from it to write a Torah scroll, phylacteries, tefillin, and mezuzahs. The reed, not a branch of a cedar tree, but the gentle, flexible reed that is always kind, yielding, and never judgmental. That's the quill that we use to write the holiest sacred text that we have. A Torah scroll, tefillin, and mezuzahs. There you have the Gemara. Now the truth is, everybody here is wise enough to know, you can, I can end my talk right now. You have everything you need here, all the materials needed to address any form of bias, prejudice, racism. But I want to analyze it a bit more. First of all, how is it even possible? We're not talking about a simple man, Rabbi Lozer. He studied Torah. He knows what it says in the Torah about loving every fellow. Nowhere does the Torah ever allude that if somebody doesn't fit the liking, that you don't like what they look like, 
that you shouldn't love them. And let alone what she's thinking to go and actually state it to a person, how ugly you are. And why are we being told the story? It's so, uh, it's so embarrassing. I mean, anyone reading this can say, hey, now I understand all the rabbis and all the educators and leaders of our time that have turned off so many Jews from Judaism because they behave the same way. They may not say how ugly you are, but they make you feel that way. How many people I've heard from, they say, I went into a synagogue. I hadn't gone to a synagogue for 20 years, but I wanted to go. My friend was by being bar mitzvah, by being bar mitzvah and his son. Or I just wanted to go for Yom Kippur. And all I heard from the rabbi is how evil and sinful we are. Why you only come once a year. Or some other judgmental statements that were very condescending and turnoffs. So all you got to do is look at this Gemara and say, yeah, they're all like Rabbi Lozer. And I don't think this is just a theory. So you have a Gemara, a Talmud, that addresses the issue, takes the bull by the horns. And of all people, who did Rabbi Lozer learn from? The one that he called ugly was the one that taught him that there's a God in this world. And God creates human beings. So there's much to analyze here. But I want to touch upon a few key points in the context of our theme here that we can take away literally in how we address every form of prejudice. And that's why I'm talking not just the extreme forms of racism because they're all rooted in the same place. They're all rooted of who determines what is considered value. You don't need to be a rocket scientist to know that none of us have that power. It's quite amazing, actually, if you think about it, that it took thousands of years for a secular world to establish a country like the United States that states in the Declaration of Independence that all men are created equal and therefore have inalienable rights endowed by them by their creator. Till 250 years ago, there was no such statement made in any institutionalized government. Monarchs ruled, the church ruled. That concept didn't exist. The only place it existed was in the Torah. Right in the beginning, the human being was created in a divine image without qualification. There's nowhere in the Torah you'll find that somebody does not have a divine image. It can be concealed. We may not live up to it. We may not be aligned with it. But that's a statement without qualification, that every human being was created in the divine image. Whether Thomas Jefferson got it straight from that verse or another verse, it's very clear today, scholars have already written about it, that this principle, which is really the foundation of what we call today freedom and democracy, or more important, human rights, and that they're equal to all human beings, is straight from the Torah. The Talmud is essentially based on that principle as well, the one we just read. I always thought, I asked uh, some legal scholars, why did the founding fathers, who were deists, and they knew about the separation of church and state, why did they use the word creator? Created equal, endowed by the creator, several times in the Declaration of Independence. They could have said all men are born equal, all men are equal. Just for the record, if I was involved in the editing process, I would have written all people. So it shouldn't infer that it's not women. 
But today we understand men there as being humans, all humans. So why is that? I never heard from anyone an explanation. The only explanation I've found in my own logic is because they knew that if they don't put the word creator in, you won't have an absolute guarantee for that equality. A majority can come and say, you know what? Some are more equal than others. As soon as you put creator, everybody knows none of us is the creator. It's only due to the virtue that the birthright that we're all created by God that gives us that absolute equality. It's quite an amazing thing if you think about it. But it sheds light on what this message in this Talmud is. And that is that Rabbi Elazar, remember, is coming from pride. Whether he would have said the same thing if he was just riding on a donkey on the riverside, on the beach, not having been so proud, the Torah Talmud clearly implies that it would not have happened. So the first thing we know from this don't ever overestimate. Even if you are in a state of a holy, sacred state, you just study Torah, and you're proud, not again, not of materialistic success. You're proud of your spiritual conquests. You're proud of your studying Torah. As soon as there's pride, a sense of self, what do you think will happen? You will not be able to fully respect another because you're filled with yourself. Yes, in this case, it's studying Torah. And wandering off even for even a millimeter from that context allowed Rabbi Lazar to fall and say something like he said. And the Talmud will not, in any way, as I said before, mince words, will tell you exactly what happens. Even the mildest form of arrogance means that you see yourself so important. You see someone else now that doesn't look the way you think they should look. And the commentaries talk, what does it mean, the ugliness? Clearly, it didn't just mean his behavior. If he saw the person doing something, let's say, atrocious, there's some that try to suggest that this man, the ugliness was his behavior. He did something really despicable. So there, Rabbi Lazar is pointing out, how could you behave in such an ugly manner? But we can't say that's the meaning, because then his answer doesn't make sense. Then he would say, don't mix in my business, into my business, who are you to judge me? He said, go to, my, go to the creator, go to the creator that crafted me. That man would never have said that if it was about his behavior, because God didn't force him to behave in a despicable way. In other words, it was something not appealing or even repulsive in his look. And his response, that is the key, the secret, my friends, that's the secret that there is a, God within, a godliness within each one of us. There's a craftsman that shaped you. So when you see someone behave in a way that you don't approve of, and let's say that you didn't jump to conclusions, you established that it's really inappropriate. It's ugly, objectively. If it's, you haven't even proven it, then for sure, that you're just coming, running to, rushing to judgment without having any facts, that's obviously inappropriate. But even if it's something that's not you don't approve of, you disagree with that person, they're still created by God. So yes, you can talk about their behavior and we have free will. We'll talk about that afterwards. But here, the point here is not about human behavior. We're talking about their parents. That God shapes every human being. And by virtue of that, at the root of it, 
if someone really is aware of that and cognizant, they'd be not be capable of any bias, prejudice, and definitely not racism. And if you're not aware of that, even for a moment, you could be the greatest scholar and rabbi, and yet be somebody that missed the bottom line, and that is that the God created every person. And by virtue of that, there's no necessary respect because you're respecting God. It's not about the person, it's about the craftsman that shaped him. Which also explains why would he refuse to forgive him? The obvious reason. Because it wasn't about you know, insulting me. You're insulting God. You said something that you need to go to God to ask forgiveness for. And yet Rabbi Loza pursued him because he wanted, he knew it was him that he insulted. Why did Rabbi Loza not take his advice? and go and turn to God, you have to say he probably did at the end of the day. And then that last statement, which is maybe even more powerful, when he says to the townspeople, he says, if he's a rabbi, you're calling him rabbi master? May, there may not be such rabbis among Israel. And I'm not mentioning any names, so there's no Lashon Hara here, and there's no uh, bad-mouthing any rabbis that exist. One of the reasons I personally don't like to go by the title rabbi especially after you read this Gemara, you know, because rabbis don't necessarily have such a great name in this country, to be uh, perfectly frank. It's not everywhere that way. Just for the record, you go to South Africa, they love rabbis. They respect rabbis. I made a rabbi joke once in South Africa, and they looked at me like something, like something matter with me. But the point being is, there's a reason for it. Because religions and rabbis have, unfortunately, many times, disappointed would be a mild term, have desecrated this very principle. But that's not the subject of our conversation here. It's just part of the context of this Talmud. So what it comes down to is really how we look at each other. So, of course, the obvious question is this. So, one minute. Does that mean that we have to accept every person unconditionally? And what happens if they are? behaving or saying things that are absolutely antithetical to God, to Torah, to values. I mean, to put it bluntly, do the Nazis also have a right? They're also created by God. They're also created in the divine image. So how do we deal with that issue? Do we just overlook? So I think if we think about it, and I have siblings, I'm the oldest of five. I'm sure some of you have siblings. I don't agree with them all, with, with my siblings about, about, about many things we agree and some things we don't agree. But in no way does it impact or compromise my love for them and hopefully their love for me. Now, how's that possible? Because if you begin with the principle that it doesn't start with you and end with you and your opinions and your feelings but there's a God that created each of us, and each of us has that divine image. And in addition to that, that each of us is also created differently, with different way of thinking, different opinions, different dispositions, different characteristics. You begin with those axioms, then it's a whole different story. In psychological terms, I would say the following. I remember once uh, having to meet an individual who was uh, quite uh, aggressive. He was pursuing me. I didn't want to meet him. 
But then I really had no choice. He wanted to debate with me about something I had said. I just thought it wouldn't go anywhere. So I just... But then finally I met him. Before I met him, I asked a friend of his, I said, what's the story with this guy? So he said to me, he hides his ignorance with his arrogance. That's the way he put it. And I thought about it many times. You know, what drives many people, whether they admit it or not, is insecurity. When you're not secure with your position, you're going to be very intolerant of other people's positions because you're fighting for your turf. So the beauty of this Talmudic statement here is that when you appreciate the godliness within yourself, your uniqueness, your indispensability, then it's far easier to coexist with others and recognize that they also have something indispensable to contribute. But if you don't have that respect for yourself, are you going to have that respect for someone else? Now, you may not even know it consciously, because subconsciously all these things are working with beneath, the, beneath the surface, behind the scenes. So the statements here really reveal to us an entire pathology of how we understand ourselves and how we understand others. You'll see, the more secure someone is, the more they coexist, the more they can tolerate another. Now, this doesn't mean you have to agree with that person. You could adamantly disagree. But the question is, does it spill over to personalizing the disagreement? Does it spill over to character assassination? Do you have to be wrong for me to be right? You have your opinion. Hold yourself with your opinion. I may completely disagree with you. Fine, I don't need, I don't need you to be proven wrong. If we, I want to have an open conversation and you're open to it, let's, let's talk. But if you can't get through to the other person, does that mean that you don't have a position? So you see what we're dealing with here is, and I was taught that when you're dealing with a challenge, and today racism, the topic is definitely a hot, hot, a hot potato topic. What do they call the red flag topics? That it really is an opportunity to challenge us to look at ourselves and not just say, oh, everybody else is a racist except me. But rather to understand how we are suffering a crisis of identity. And this is not advocating a religious argument. When the founding fathers wrote, all men are created equal, the point was not that you need to now embrace religious values and the creator. The point is that even a secular scientist and a secular thinker understands that without having that absolute value that each human being has, you will never have an equal society. Even with it, look at the challenges we have. So this is actually a logical argument. It's the only way that you can really establish what we call the harmony within diversity. Or another expression from this country's uh, documents, e pluribus unum, from the many one. Many, diverse, different. So when I speak about this with my secular friends, especially those that call themselves atheists, and I say to them, let me ask you, if you wrote the Constitution of the United States, would you give the same equal rights to religious people as religious people gave you in the freedom to be able to be an atheist? So one guy was honest, he said, I don't think so. Because I think religious people, religious people are suffering from psychosis. Why would I give them that right? I said, so you're telling me that a believer in the Creator gives you more rights than you would give them. Interesting. Something to think about. In other words, 
Yes, it is God that gave us the right even to deny God. And even to deny the godly image in other people. And when a person is in any way prejudiced or biased or racist, they are defying God. And that's why this Talmud is so important. Because here's a man of God. Rabbi Lozer was a man of God. No one denies it. He remains such. Again, one of the greatest scholars. And his father, Rabbi Shimon Bayechai, was one of the great champions of Avis Yisrael, of unconditional love. Actually, he was one of the few students of Rabbi Akiva that survived the plague that came because they didn't honor each other. The great students of Rabbi Akiva, 24,000 of them, because they did not, they didn't, they dishonored each other out of their passion. The same thing, they were proud of their studies and they didn't leave room for the other. Intolerant, like a cedar, not like a reed. And they died in a plague. Rabbi Shema Bayachoy was one of those that survived. So you think his son learned the lesson, but never become overconfident. Because as soon as you have pride, you get blinded. Everybody gets blinded. The Torah has a statement that says, Sheikhid ya'avr chachamim. Sheikhid means bias, a bribery. It blinds the eyes of the wise. So of course the question is, so why is that person called wise? If they can be biased and blinded, maybe they're not so wise. And the Torah calls them chachamim, and misalaf tzidivrei tzadikim. It distorts the words of a, a righteous. The Torah is calling the person righteous and a chacham, a wise person, because nobody is beyond bias. A little pride blinds you. Who is it when they established the state of Israel? So one of the heads of the religious party came to Ben-Gurion, first prime minister, and said to him, now that Israel has been established, why don't we create reconvene and recreate the Sanhedrin, which was the central supreme court of Jewish life for many years during the time of the temple. So Ben-Gurion, who's a secular Jew, says to him, because it's very difficult to find people that are not Oyev Betza. It's going to be hard to find people who, don't, uh, who can't be bribed. And you're going to create one central court system, and if it's a little corrupt, it's going to be a central corruption. This way, Every community has its own corruption, has to deal with decentralized. So this uh, religious uh, Knesset leader responds to him. He says, for money you can find that too. No, it's for money you can find people who uh, won't take a bribe. You know, if the price is right, basically. So the point being is that even though it's easy for us to sit in this room, this beautiful retreat, you see a unity of different people from different walks of life, and we can condemn the racism out there. But we Jews have always understood that everything is symbiotic. If there's overt racism, even in the worst circles in the world, it means we have to look in our own hearts and souls. How is our pride? How are we looking at each other? Is there even a tinge of judgmentalism or condescension? And again, this is not about pointing fingers. It's actually about heightening our sensitivity to the words that this man, who remains anonymous, taught the great Rabbi Lazar and teaches us all, go to the craftsman, to the creator that shaped me. I did not shape myself. Go to God. He created me. This doesn't justify bad choices that we always are accountable for. But even that, when you see someone make a bad choice, do we know why? You can see people who are doing things today that would be really terrible. 
And then you find out what kind of life they lived, what kind of home they grew up in. I still would not justify any behavior that's criminal, but it's a sensitivity. Someone recently told me, they had heard a talk I gave about a similar topic. They said they were on an airplane. You know, on an airplane, you're, you're stuck with the, the other passengers. And there was one family, father with four or five kids, and their whole flight, which was middle of the night, it was an overseas flight, the children would not stop making a racket. You know how annoying that can, can be. And finally, one guy just got, went over to the father and says, can you be a father for once and for all and take care of your kids? You're keeping the whole the plane awake, you know. Anyway, he goes back to his seat, and someone comes over to him and whispers to him and says, I just want you to know that that father and his children are coming back from a funeral, the funeral of his wife. And uh, these little children are now new orphans, and he's a widower. So you could imagine this person's feelings. He, he shared this with me. He says, you never know. Now, the same ruckus, but then you see context. And again, I'm not looking, to, we shouldn't be looking to justify our own behavior. But when you see another person, what do we know? And the overt, the most extreme form of it, of course, we know what real racism is. And I'm talking about racism across the board. I don't just mean anti-Semitism, but I mean any type of racism, whether it's based on color or creed or culture or religion, or just you just don't like those people. You think every time a child is bullied in a classroom, it's a form, I don't want to call it racism because it's not exactly the right definition, but it's a form of desecrating the divine image of that child and in effect desecrating God. So when you broaden the theme, you see that this story is really every scenario. And I didn't want to limit this talk just to the racism that we are all talking about today. And let me share just the last few comments of this uh, lecture of what we can do about it. So I think it's pretty implicit. What we can do about it is we have to start teaching ourselves and our children from the youngest age, literally from the youngest age, that you are a gift of God's. You. And as a result, by extension, every other person is also a gift of God. If we said this to our children every morning and every evening, you know, we have the, the Moda'ani prayer we say in the morning. Think about it for a moment. Thank you for returning my soul to me. Is the full text. But basically, thank you. First of all, a voice of gratitude. Don't take anything for granted. Your life is a gift. But it's also a great gift. Your soul was returned to you. Your soul is sacred. We say that afterwards. It's pure. It's sacred. Your contract was renewed. You were giving an, given another day to contribute to this world with your indispensable, unique skills and unique light, unique song. If we said this to with our children every morning, not just lip service, and what do you think will come out of that? Besides the child learning why true value is not just how smart I am, how much money I will make one day, or other superficial things, but comes from the essence. We matter not because we think we're important, or even because we learn a lot of Torah, 
and we're proud of it, but rather because God put me here. And by extension, what that means is that everyone you know, you're going to go to school, little child. The other boys, the other girls you meet, they too said moda'ani, or should say every morning. Because they too are uman shasani. They also have a craftsman that created them with their unique indispensable qualities. So I know this is like what we call derech arucha ktsara, the long-term approach. It doesn't solve the problem immediately, but long-term. But you know, long-term preempts many, many issues. And in that context, dealing with the short term, the real response ultimately, and I'll share this, like I began the story with my book, Torah Meaning Flav, I want to conclude with it. A double plug. <laughs> I just thought of that right now. Um, as I mentioned, I was interviewed by uh, many different radio stations and TV back in 1995. 96. One of them was a major radio sh show down south, this part of the world, Florida, Georgia, Louisiana, I think a few states. And I remember the publicist told me this is a big thing and make sure that millions of people listen to this show. Well, what do you know? The show was scheduled for the interview of all days of the year, Erev Yom Kippur, 1996, I believe it was, or 95. Trying to remember what year. Probably 96. Okay, no problem. It's Erev Yom Kippur, the day before Yom Kippur. And uh, what happens? That morning, the verdict of O.J. Simpson came out. Right? If the glove don't fit, you got to acquit. Remember that jingle? And he was acquitted. So the radio host calls me and says... Rabbi Jacobson, with all respect, I read your book, it's a great book, but the timing is just off. Everyone wants to know about O.J. Simpson now. That's the only thing people are talking about. I don't know if any of you are old enough to remember. That's a compliment, by the way. You look young to me. So, um, and therefore, we'll, we'll reschedule your this because we need to talk about this. Now, I was taught and told, once you get into the door, you don't let them, out, don't let them close it on you. So I said to her, to the host, I said, so let's talk about O.J. Simpson. She said, you have something to say about that? Yeah, I have plenty to say. I had no idea what I had to say, but, you know. So, okay, fine. I don't have to find another guest because I already have you booked. So just remember, we have to talk about that. Because I was taught by a, an embassy producer told me once that when Art Buchwald, who was a speechwriter for presidents, wrote a book about cats, not the name cats, uh, the animal, the cats. He wrote a book about cats, so the interviewer that on the station said to him, you know, we know the book, we'll plug your book, but let's talk about President, Nick, uh, President Johnson, President uh, Kennedy, he was a speechwriter. So he said, fine. He said, so well, tell us something about President Johnson that nobody knows. He says, President Johnson loved cats. What about President Kennedy? He hated cats. You know, so he connected, so I, okay, the next morning the interview starts, Okay, O.J. Simpson, the verdict is out. Rabbi Jacobson, what do you have to say? So I, I shared a few things, and I said, the solution to all the problems, remember there was a real, talk about racism, all the blacks saw this as vindication, all the whites saw this as 
a travesty that uh, O.J. Simpson was acquitted, and it created a big racial uh, divide in the country. So I said, go to page, I forgot the page number, 145 in Torah Meaningful Life, and you have the answer to all our racist issues. What is that? When, that, when we had the riots in Crown Heights in 1991, everyone remembers Yankel Rosenbaum, Rahman al-Islam, was killed in cold blood. So it's true there was an accident, Gavin Cato, a young black boy, was tragically killed by accident. But then they deliberately killed Yankel Rosenbaum. And it was a, literally a pogrom. I remember that summer of 1991. So after everything finally started clearing up, Mayor Dinkins, the black mayor of, of uh, New York, came to see the Lubavitcher Rebbe. And he said to him, Rebbe, give us a blessing. There should be peace between the two peoples, the blacks and the whites, or the blacks and the Jews. And the Rebbe's response was, not two peoples. It's one people and the one under administration under one God. I said, as much as we can talk about the court case, whether it was right or wrong, what's lacking in this country that we have forgotten, that is God that created all people. And God created blacks and Jews and whites and all different types of people. And if we can all embrace the God within each of us, that's our solution. And that became an hour and a half interview just around that. I don't know if there were other shows that talked about that angle. But she thanked me later. She said, I want to thank you because, you know, you could have talked about how O.J. Simpson got off and how his lawyers pulled this prank and that prank. So I'd like to conclude and say the following. I mean, JLI retreat to me always is a, uh, a melting pot in a way. You meet people from all backgrounds, different backgrounds, different education. You know, I don't think there's a hostile audience here, at least not in this room. Um, but we are different. And when you start digging deeper, you may find really deeper differences in opinions, polit politics, and so on. I think to be able to have an environment where people who actually don't agree necessarily, but still agree on one thing, the Uman Shasani, the craftsman that shaped us all, shaped you and shaped me. And if you're able to get beyond the, the, the clouded lens of our myopic vision of how we look at each other and actually be able to maybe just for a second see there's a divine image in each of us, maybe concealed, maybe covered up, I think that is a worthwhile enterprise. And if we can create a little community right here with that spirit, it's a matter of just carrying it back to wherever your community may be. And today we have the butterfly and ripple effect of paying it forward, that if we can bring that type of sentiment, that type of perspective to our respective communities, respective families, homes, nations, we could change the world. So thank you so much. And may we all merit that the indispensable musical notes each of us is should join together in that harmony within diversity in one grand cosmic symphony with a cosmic um, conductor, God himself, the Uman Shasani. Thank you, thank you. Please visit myjli.com to learn more about JLI's multiple educational offerings and toracafe.com to view highlights and lectures from past retreats.